From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. You're taking responsibility for what you're paying for with your taxes and or your presumed consent. When I call my senator's office because my senator has targeted someone on the government Twitter account, I say to the person on the other side of the line, I'm calling because I share custody of the behavior of my United States senator. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we are delighted to welcome back to the show David Dark. He's an American writer and public intellectual. He's the author of several books, including The Sacredness of Questioning Everything, Everyday Apocalypse, The Simpsons and Other Pop Culture Icons, and The Possibility of America. Longtime listeners will remember that we discussed the possibility of America here on the show a couple of seasons back. Dr. Dark's writing has appeared in Pitchfork, Paste Magazine, America Magazine, and The Christian Century. David Dark teaches in incarcerated communities and at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. David Dark, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Thank you. I'm so glad to be with you. I'm delighted to be with you. Longtime listeners and readers of my various works will know that I learn a lot from you every time that I interact with you, when I read you, when I get a chance to talk to you, when I get a chance to tweet with you. And so I'm looking forward to what we can do today in terms of bringing a conversation together. I'd like to begin our conversation, especially for listeners who didn't get a chance to listen to our previous conversation about the possibility of America, I'd like to begin our conversation in a place where you sometimes begin conversations in your classes at Belmont University. And that is, I would like you to briefly describe your weird religious background. Wow. Okay. So I am of the Stone Campbell movement, which is a way of saying that I am Southern Church of Christ. Sometimes it's Christian church. My mother was baptized in the Christian church. I was baptized in the Church of Christ. And I will never, well, I'll mention some people who I think were also, I don't know for sure, but I think Roy Orbison also was. And I think that Daniel Johnston also was. And I think that Jeffrey Dahmer also was. And I say all that to say that it is a complicated background, which can involve some prurience, I want to say, some confusion over bodies, flesh, that kind of stuff, but also a deep conscientiousness because we're growing up in Nashville. I did not meet a lot of people who read the Bible as attentively and intensely as I did. I will mention that I read the Bible all the way through at a fairly early age, because I thought that if I was to die without having read the Bible all the way through, that I would be in eternal conscious pain 
So that's part of my weird religious background. But from there, you meet people and you meet Catholics and you're attracted to those Catholics. And they might not have read the Bible with the same fear and trembling that you have, but sometimes they're among the most righteous people the world has ever seen. So I would say probably 17, 18, I started getting some really good Catholic friends. Probably a little ways into my 20, I started having some Jewish friends and Buddhist friends. And one begins to consider the possibility that maybe they know something that I don't, that maybe God loves them very specifically, and that they've got a thing going with the creator of the universe and they don't have to get on my horse or my track or whatever. So I should say now I am on paper, I am Presbyterian USA. And uh, I'm, it goes back to as an elder right now, but I am an ordained elder in the PCUSA, which means I'm in there with Fred Rogers and Eugene Peterson and people like that. Also, Donald Trump, I'll mention, he was baptized as a baby in the Peace USA. And I think part of my weird religious background is I like to keep receipts. I like to look at them. So the fact that the clerk or some clerk within the Peace USA, you can go online and you can look and you can see where it's explained. Yes, Donald Trump was baptized as a baby, but he is not, this isn't the language, but it's something like he's not in fellowship with us. So the idea that we have a dog in the fight of his moral formation at this stage, the fact that the PCUSA bothers with that kind of thing is really important to me. Uh, so I care. I believe this stuff, I will say. And uh, I love talking about it. Questions of baptism, questions of formation, all of that. So that's some of my background. I'm of Nashville. My mother's still alive. She's 82. She's in the Creve Hall area. And uh, we talk Richard Rohr on Sundays. So yeah, here I am. David Dark of Nashville, glad to be with you. I'm so grateful for the generosity and expansiveness of that answer. And listeners who stayed with you through that entire odyssey will now begin to get a sense of how David Dark's mind works, because in addition to thinking very deeply about things like the Bible and reading it attentively, in addition to paying attention to things like baptism, you're also pulling in pop culture references, Fred Rogers to Jeffrey Dahmer, and a, a stint into indie rock talking about Daniel Johnston. And, and seeing all of these as religious touchstones, I think, begins to get us into what we're talking about today, which is a reframed and expanded edition of your book, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. And so I wonder if you can give us a little bit of an encapsulation of the occasion of expanding and revising this. What did it mean to you to come back to this work? What did you think that you needed to say a little differently as you were thinking about putting this together? Yes, thank you for that. Well, the occasion of revisiting it is the fact that InterVarsity Press wasn't going to publish it anymore. I'm still not clear on why. I, I liked that Richard Rohr blurbed it, and I imagined that a Richard Rohr blurb might keep a book in print for a while. But it was decided, and the word that I received from on high was that the sales were not what they needed to be. And so, okay. And at that point, I started seeing about getting it published again, maybe even under a different title, possibly. 
because I really like the material and I think it's a pretty solid work. And I contacted Lil Copen of Broadleaf, who has become a friend over the last few years. And she was eager to see about doing that. And we wanted to work together for a long time. And Broadleaf agreed. And I should say, my exchanges with people on Twitter, social media, I was a little dismayed at how off-putting the title and the assertion that is the title was to people. I love getting into it with people, for better or worse. But I couldn't get people past the title. Exactly. But I enjoy trying to get people past the title. I like the struggle. I like the punchiness. I did decide that, well, yeah, it's tough because you've got the title and then you say, I, I don't, it's an assertion, but it, it's a soft assertion. It's, it's trying to get a conversation going. Um, of course, I'm not suggesting that everybody has to call themselves religious or everybody's secretly religious. But, and I'm trying to define religion expansively so that, well, so that forms of human behavior, like drone strikes, like executing people, like knowingly gouging the common good, <laughs> that nobody can say, well, that's not religion, that's politics, or that's just business. So in my core, I am trying to decompartmentalize human culture the way I kind of did while I was talking. And that is a hard one thing. Because I needed Star Trek and Doctor Who and Radiohead to be as to be taken seriously as sacred witnesses. For one thing, to deliver me from some toxic conceptions of myself and others that have come from my my reading of scripture or what I was taught in church. So I'm trying to hold the door open. But I also want to slow my roll, and I will go ahead and say that an instance in which I realized that I needed to slow my roll was when I listened to Justice Amy Coney Barrett inquire. I'm not going to be able to name it. It's in the book. But there was a Supreme Court case where she seemed to be leading a lawyer down the road of saying, if everybody has a belief system, then all public school curriculums are based on some belief system. And so from there, that seems to open a door to taxpayer-funded religious indoctrination. And I could imagine her, if, if my book was more popular, I could imagine her referring to that book. Well, you know, David Dark says, life's too short. And I thought, oh, shoot, this isn't good. I may have unwittingly, and I, and I guess I'll go ahead and say that when Life's Too Short came out, I was on Eric Metaxas's podcast. He looked at it and thought, oh, sounds great. <laughs> He's one of ours. And I do want to be in conversation with everybody. But Eric Metaxas is someone who rather famously became an election denier in a manner of speaking, seemed to back the January 6th insurrection. So the last few years has been kind of a, huh, where do I sit among these people? What are my responsibilities? So there is a degree of repentance apology, backing down from a posture that I am no longer comfortable with, and we'll perhaps get into this, but words that I wasn't comfortable with when I wrote the book, yeah, this is embarrassing. When people spoke of spiritual abuse, I would think, oh, I don't know. 
maybe you just haven't met the right Christians yet. Or maybe don't blame your horrible youth pastor. Well, don't blame Christianity with your horrible youth pastor. And I'm now thinking, you know, I need to let people kind of talk about their own experience without being a hall monitor over words like Christian, religion, that kind of stuff. So there's a mea culpa in the book. There are changes in the book. And the afterward fairly directly says, I'm, I was wrong to conduct myself this way six or seven years ago. And I thank God and Broadleaf Books that I have the opportunity to change it. Not everybody gets this opportunity. And it's been a pleasure thinking these things through again and trying again. I'll mention too, I'm sorry, I'm kind of TED talking, but Chrissy Stroop has become something of a remote friend. And Chrissy Stroop and I initially on on Twitter maybe kind of got into it a little when Chrissy would say, don't tell me that I brought, don't do that. And I said, no, I'm not saying that you're religious. I'm just trying to hold space. And now I think we're in a good place, Chrissy and I. I, I feel very respected by Chrissy. And I hope Chrissy feels respected by me. And Chrissy has paid me the compliment of suggesting that for an evangelical, I'm not a bad one or something like that. I don't know if evangelical is a helpful adjective to apply to me, but I feel seen by Chrissy. And I, and I really was thinking of a lot of Chrissy's critiques of my the way I conducted myself on Twitter and elsewhere as I was revising this book. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted to welcome back to the show today Professor David Dark. He's an American writer and public intellectual. He lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and he teaches at Belmont University, and he also teaches to various incarcerated communities there in the Nashville area. Today we're talking about his recent revised, reframed, and expanded book, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years worth of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today we are speaking with David Dark. He's an American writer and a public intellectual. He's the author of a number of books. We've talked about one of them here on the show before, the book The Possibility of America. Today we're discussing his reframed and expanded edition of his earlier work, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. In the first segment, you made a side comment that actually I wanted to come back to because there was a point in the book that sort of arrested me. You gave me an image as a reader of, okay, a member of, of Islam, a Muslim has strapped bombs to their body and they go into a public space and they blow themselves up. And we are very quick in the West to see that and classify that as a religious act. And then in the next paragraph, you say, and yet when we look at someone like a president ordering a drone strike, 
that kills the same number of innocent people in a similar kind of situation. We look at that and we say, that's not a religious act, that's a political act. I wonder if you could expand a little bit on that distinction, because I think it's a helpful one for our listeners here in understanding what you're trying to get at in your book, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. Yes, happy to. Yeah, it's not fair. It is not fair to give state violence a pass. America is an arrangement. We have the Constitution. We have these agreements about how we talk about these things. But a sentence that occurred to me that is in the book that survived the revision is this. Policy is liturgy writ large. I wrote that for Comet Magazine when I was writing about teaching in incarcerated settings. And James K. Smith said, good. He was my editor. And I thought, okay, I got a good one there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that again. It's the kind of thing I imagine William Kavanaugh saying. It's the kind of thing I imagine Daniel Berrigan saying. And Daniel Berrigan, I should say, I never met him. We have a number of people in common. But Daniel Berrigan is in my head a lot of the time. I think I've probably read more Daniel Berrigan, perhaps, than any other one author. And his witness of, you know, was it a... It was with much prayer, with much discernment, that he decided it was time with his brother Philip to go into the draft board at the height of the Vietnam War and take those draft files and burn them in the strong name of Jesus, if you like, or in the name of good coordination. It was a moment that is repressed in the American imagination. I see people all over the political spectrum. When I bring up the name Daniel Berrigan, there's a kind of, oh yeah, me and Julio down by the schoolyard, or the, the radical priest. Kurt Vonnegut said, if Berrigan is Jesus as a poet, if that's heresy, make the most of it. He was this solid witness. He was not alone, like Dr. King or any number of people. He was a person, a man who represented a larger movement. Of, of beloved community, of nonviolent action. And policy is liturgy writ large is a mantra that I repeated in a Sunday school class that I was teaching just yesterday when someone in the Sunday school class noted, we're in the state of Tennessee, we execute people. Sometimes those people we execute have become Christians on death row. And so the, the person was out loud processing, wasn't saying get rid of state killing, but was expressing a little bit of concern over the fact that we are killing Christians in Tennessee. I, I, I want more than that from the person, but it was a little bit of movement, like probably shouldn't kill ministers. Some of those people have gotten ordained on death row. Maybe we should slow our roll when it comes to electrocuting them. And so I said, I'm going to say something to you. And they asked me to repeat it. I'm going to say this. Policy is liturgy writ large. Liturgy, you'll get the pronunciation better than I will, but I'll say liturgia or something like that, is the work of the people. So a cupcake is a liturgy. And a landmine is a liturgy. And coffee is a liturgy. So once we do that, and that's kind of this thing I'm trying to do with religion, my devotion to Radiohead, 
I, I don't worship Radiohead, but I believe their witness. Dorothy Day said she wanted to be remembered as someone who read Dostoevsky well. That wasn't her saying that she worshipped Dostoevsky, but to have read Dostoevsky well, to have incorporated Dostoevsky's witness into your own life. Johnny Cash, Bob Dylan said that Johnny Cash was like a religious figure to him. He knew him personally, but he also felt called out by his music. Dylan said that when he first heard Boy Names Too, it was like a voice came out of a cave that said, what are you doing there, boy? Like, I got called by Johnny Cash. So when we speak of these things as religious, it's, it's a way of regarding these expressions, these efforts as holy. And now, now I'm on a ramble, but policy is liturgy writ large. Um, our drone program, there is a rhetorical sleight of hand at work when we want to say that the violence undertaken by people who identified as Muslims was religious, where the dropping an atomic bomb on a city by a president who called himself a Christian, that was just defense. That was just national security. That's not religion. So I'm trying to hold that space there because I own the electric chair at Riverbend Maximum Security Prison. I need to call it my electric chair so that I can assume responsibility and so that I can go out there and hold a candle and say, not in my name. We get to own our stuff because we're paying for it. We're responsible. So my argument, so I, I should say, in the earlier book, I defined religion as controlling story. I've landed on a bet, and of course, that's borrowing from Tillich's ultimate concern. I'm now defining it. There's a little more, a little more nimble now. I define religion as perceived necessity. So by defining this perceived necessity, when we say we've got to do this thing, for whatever reason, we are, are what we perceive as necessary and as essential. We're bringing our worship, our soul, our witness, our conscience into that. Here again, the broad definition, of, and of course, yeah, here again, by going broad, I think we're able to do a little more ethical work. I think we're able to expand the space of the talk aboutable. And that is what I'm trying to do all the time. Because I want I want to analyze my own life well. And good analysis shows relationship. Bad analysis obscures relationship. And I think that move, no, that wasn't my faith. Wasn't my faith that led me to go to war in Iraq. It was just what I had to do. I want to say, no, it, it was your faith. Because the question we put to faith is faith in what? Always. I'm a man of faith. Good. Faith in what? Because otherwise, man of faith, the word faith is just a flex. It's just marketing at that point. And so I'm trying to make a space for discerning and talking about what we're up to. This is incredibly helpful, and I want to dig into a couple of pieces that you just gave us. So at one point in your answer, you said, that's my electric chair. As a taxpayer, I help to own that electric chair. And a little earlier in your answer, you talked about Daniel Berrigan, the Catholic priest. One of the things that you note in your book, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, you call that action that Daniel Berrigan and several others undertake in the draft board burning their draft cards, you called it a transparent liturgy. And I'm, I was really interested in that phrasing because 
to me, that ties together what you're just giving us in that answer just now, is that in an action like Berrigan's, he helps to unearth and make clear those relationships that you're talking about. Berrigan's action with the draft card helps me to understand I own the electric chair, I own the drone strike. As I say that back to you, am I getting it or would you say it in a different way? You are getting it. You're taking responsibility for what you're paying for with your taxes and or your presumed consent. So this can get really confusing for people. But when I call my senator's office because my senator has targeted someone on the government Twitter account, I say to the person on the other side of the line, I'm calling because, and please don't misunderstand me, I share custody of the behavior of my United States senator. It is my Senate office. It's my White House. It's my seat. Yes, Marsha Blackburn or Bill Haggerty have the Senate seat in Washington, in a manner of speaking, but it is not theirs any more than the governor's mansion belongs to whoever happens to be governor. So if I was invited to the governor's mansion, I would touch the wall and think, mine, not in a proprietarial way, but we own this stuff. We own it. And uh, we own the prisons. We own the public schools. We own the libraries. We own the healthcare system, if you can even call it that. So, yeah, that, that is what I'm doing. And we own the draft, the paper, the paperwork. It happens that when they were burning it, there were people who were freaking out. And they were freaking out because the paperwork, the deadly paperwork, was sacrosanct. And by sacrosanct, it's like, you know, you, you cannot question this. No, it's not. No, okay, sacrosanct is something that is viewed as so sacred that to question the sacredness of it is to, oh, I mean, Kaepernick kneeling during the song. People go to the bathroom during the anthem. <laughs> People sit down during the anthem. But he knelt during the anthem, and, th- and this was obscured. He sat during the anthem initially, and he asked a veterans group, how does that strike you? To which the veterans group said, be better if you knelt. That, that has been lost to history, because the fact that he was deferring to a veterans group is not at all useful to bad faith actors who want to win office by going after Colin Kaepernick, who's a Christian. <laughs> you know, so and Eric Reed is a better example because Eric Reed is more explicitly Christian. He said, I joined Kaepernick because faith without works is dead. And then you have Mike Pence flying to Indianapolis, it seems, for the purpose of storming out publicly in performative disgust over Eric Reed kneeling. We paid for that flight, by the way. That was a very expensive huff where one man who claims Christianity does this performative thing of storming out when another man because of his Christian faith, kneels during the song. So, all religion all the time. And I, I, yeah, to pledge allegiance to a flag, if that's not a religious gesture, I don't know what is, but we've 
we have a kind of arrangement where we don't call it that. And I want to call it that. I'm not alone. We have decades of Mennonites and Quakers declining to pledge allegiance because, as it happens, if you read the material, Jesus says, don't pledge. And we have in our court system, if I'm, they tell me to swear under oath, there's a form. If I don't want to swear because Jesus says don't, there's a way that my, my testimony can be entered. We have this, but again, it's been obscured. I believe bad faith actors prefer generalization to specificity. And uh, as I like to say, generalization is tyranny's oxygen supply. Specificity cuts it off. So I'm trying to go granular, trying to get specific. Daniel Berrigan was specific, and it cost him. He wasn't really in the news until he died. Will Campbell similarly made the cover of the New York Times by dying, that he had been ignored by what I guess we could call legacy media for most of his life. When I hear your answer, and particularly when I particularly when I hear you say I share custody, my mind suddenly split in two directions, and I want to give you both and offer you either one to respond to as we move towards our next break. The first pivot was towards being in the courtyard and shouting, give us Barabbas, not Jesus, and how we are called at the Easter liturgy to take responsibility for that. In my Catholic parish, that's the part that we in the congregation get to say. We get to shout, give us Barabbas, because we own that. That us saying that we would have been there making that same choice, we would have— We So I, I hear it pushing in that direction when I hear you saying, I share custody. And that ties in with the electric chair and the drone strikes and all that. But I, I my brain went in a different direction as well, and that's to Hannah Arendt, who I know is a philosopher that's very important to you. One of the things that Arendt says in a couple of different places, she says, whenever we're talking about power, the only way that we can actually talk about power is if it comes from the ground up, if it's people working together, putting their words with their deeds, I think is one of the ways that she phrases it. And that any time that we have a split away from that and instead you're trying to control somebody else's behavior, we no longer have power, we have violence. And violence is a lack of sharing custody over things. Now, as I say those two things to you, I invite you to talk about either or both, but I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, so I want to go back to the Senate office because it happens that I have a senator who kind of went after the FBI, like doing this thing with the election stuff and the more that Merrick Garland seems to be moving toward taking action. I called the senator's office. It was Bill Haggerty. And I just said, I don't like, and this was a provocation. I said, I don't like my senator targeting cops on my Twitter account. So now I'm referring to federal authorities as cops, and I'm kind of appealing to that thin blue line rhetoric. And the woman on the other line said he wouldn't do that. And I said, I'm looking at the tweet right now. And let me be clear, um, Senator Haggerty is free to say whatever he wants to on his Vote Bill Haggerty Twitter account. But now I'm responsible because he's using my government Twitter account to go after Merrick Garland and others. Well, I don't believe you, said the woman on the other line. I said, well, give me your email because I'd like to send you a link. And she said, fine. She gave me her email. And then I just, will you tell him that this is not acceptable to me? She seemed to be maybe willing to relay the message, but she was still refusing the available evidence. And I said, well, I'm going to tell you 
ma'am. I had her name. I am about to call his church because he's a member of St. George's Episcopal. Not trying to make trouble, but I've tried. You, you need to let him know that I'm going to try to get in touch with his pastor. Not because his pastor bears complete responsibility. I know that there's other people there, but I'm going to get the word. Here, here's my plan B. I'm going to go the other route, not to communicate my hatred or I'm attacking or targeting someone. I just want the public record to show that when my senator targeted cops on my account, that I made an effort to reel him in because his incitement to violence, his pushing of disinformation is happening on my dime and my time. That can be really, really punchy, but we're human beings. And I do think the job, this is Berrigan again, is to stand where you must stand and be human. So I've got these offices on my phone. I had to do it in 2016 because I got to thinking that high blood pressure, I do some biking, and I think I'm going to have a heart attack on this bike if I don't call someone and speak my mind, exercise moral oversight over abusive people. They're my employees. I am their employer. So I found that I could bike up hills a little easier if I had put in the calls. And I would learn the names of the people on the other line. And every once in a while, I would say, my senator is consciously destroying the social safety net that vulnerable people need. And then sometimes the person on the other line would say, okay, wait, social safety net, could you say that again? Oh, good, they're writing this down. Because they know that there's a thing called the social safety net that if it isn't there, people will die. So these are just ways of working out my own faith politics with fear and trembling. And I've been, I've been busy <laughs> with this in new ways ever since, and it's, I think it's important to say this, ever since an unrepentant sexual predator assumed command of the United States military. So I don't say that to get punchy. I'm referring to the Access Hollywood tape. I sometimes call him the word white supremacist because with the central part, he called for their execution and he did not back down when they were exonerated. It's like, okay, so what I'm dealing with here, it's an infinitely valuable bearer of God's image, but he's also a white supremacist sexual assailant. And I've got a, it's not pleasant to say that in every room, but because I share custody of what he was up to and what he did. I've got to put it that way. I'm backing away from that a little bit now because he's no longer in office and I don't want to call anyone a fool. Jesus warns me about labels. But with elected officials, I do risk some specificity over how they are behaving, the way they are acting within the position that our system has given them. But I'm in a slightly different place now. Now that the White House is not occupied by someone quite like that, which isn't to say that I have nothing but love and admiration for Joe Biden. You know, I mean, there's, there's, all, there's always a morally problematic thing, but we kind of work with what we have. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're speaking with David Dark. He's an American writer and public intellectual. He has published a number of books, including The Possibility of America, which longtime listeners will recall we've discussed here on the show. Today we're talking about a reframed and expanded version of his earlier work, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're delighted to welcome back to the show David Dark. He's an American writer and public intellectual. He is the author of a number of books, Longtime listeners will recall that we've had him on the show before to talk about his work, The Possibility of America. Today, we're talking about his reframed and expanded version of his earlier work, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. Well, in our last segment, you were talking about holding public officials and other figures accountable within a frame of public discourse and let's call it kind of the civic landscape where we have agreed on a democratic experiment and we can think of, for example, senators and congresspeople as our employees or at least that we're responsible with them and to them to some extent. But in the interactions that you've been describing, you also made sure to use references like, you know, this is an infinitely valuable bearer of the image of God and things like that. So that made me think about a portion of your book, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, where you invoke two of your kind of spiritual mentors. One would be Will Campbell and the other would be James Lawson. And I wonder if you can help my listeners understand how people like Campbell and Lawson have influenced you to think about both the responsibility that you bear, but also the responsibility to your enemy, your opponent, the person who is opposing you in the public square. Talk to me about that delicate balance of both understanding that you're in conflict with this person because they want to harm people, but also that you need to value and care for this person in the process of that conflict. Yeah, this is it. And I want to note that Lawson and Campbell were good friends. Lawson is still with us. When Campbell died, he was eulogized by James Lawson. James Lawson, for people who don't know, was kind of the the architect technician of the lunch counter sit-ins in Nashville. And King directed him. He was a conscientious objector in the Korean War. He did time. But he came to Nashville. He enrolled at Vanderbilt. And he trained students in nonviolent action, which involved prepping for the day that they would go into segregated restaurants, black students, I should say, and sit in the whites-only section, demand service, and then wait for the cops to come and to not resist arrest exactly, but not cooperate with arrest. Go limp, make them carry you out, at which point, 1959, 1960, it was known that the white citizens of Nashville would taunt, spit upon, not all, obviously, but they were going to get in big trouble. And they were committed as followers of Jesus to not respond, not react. And in those trainings, they did role-playing where they did it to each other to make sure they had what it 
took to not react. And if on the day of the event, you had a headache or in a bad mood, and you thought, I'm not going to be able to hold it together. It's like, okay, thanks for saying so. Because if you react, it destroys the whole thing. If I may, skipping to our own day, the Black Lives Matter movement, in Ferguson, if you've got 800 people nonviolently addressing the situation, and one person gets on that side and throws a bottle, it is now a riot. It kind of does it. It's in terms of newspeak, the way the thing is going to be characterized, strict discipline is required. And going back to 1959, 1960, that's what James Lawson understood. And I'm going to share a quick anecdote. Famously, it didn't always go this way, but famously, his job was to remind the students of their commitment to nonviolence and also inform people who wandered over to yell at them that these students were committed to nonviolence. So if you do pour a milkshake on a young man's head or um, say the N-word to them, they're committed and they're not going to react. So James Lawson on the scene, part of his job was letting people know the situation and to say to white people, do what you're going to do. But that's not a fair fight. They are not going to respond to you. At which point, one fellow in a leather jacket spat in James Lawson's face, called him the N-word. James Lawson looked at the guy and said, may I borrow a handkerchief? And the guy was so thrown that he reached into his jacket and handed James Lawson a handkerchief. James Lawson wiping the spit off of his face correctly guessed that the fella had a motorcycle just a few feet away. And he said to him, is that your motorcycle? To which the guy said, yes. And now they're having a conversation about horsepower, motorcycles. And eventually the guy says to James Lawson, is there anything I can do to help you folks with what you're doing? So it's almost like a fairy tale. If Lawson hadn't told the story to me personally, you know, it's kind of hard to believe. And I should say there were those who tried that and it didn't work, but it did work in this moment. And I asked James Lawson, how do you become someone who knows to offer a creative response and what that creative response might be when your whole body is saying react? And Lawson said, keep in your mind an imagery of infinite possibility, which was just this amazing line. I thought, okay, I'm writing that down. I did write it down. I put it on the refrigerator. This was when I was, he was teaching a nonviolence course at Vanderbilt. And I've repeated it ever since. I, I do think that it's a little like the gospel writers writing down the good line. Keep in your mind an imagery of infinite possibility. So Lawson is a practitioner of this. He is something of a mystic to me. He is something of a poet to me because he knows the work of the poetic, prophetic response. I want to quickly, I'll get over to Campbell again for a moment, but Laricia Hawkins and I are friends. And as viewers might know, she was fired from Wheaton for the actions and the explanations of her actions taken when Jerry Falwell Jr. joked about killing Muslims.
at the height of Trump's Muslim ban and at the height of the San Bernardino shooting. Falwell Jr., president of Liberty University, joked about killing Muslims. Laricia Hawkins, associate professor of political science, tenured at Wheaton, offered a response. Franklin Graham went after her, and she got let go for refusing to play according to Wheaton's, what Wheaton wanted of her after that. I mentioned her because she visited campus here at Belmont about a week ago, and she said, fear takes over if you haven't done the soul work. And when fear takes over, we villainize, we demonize, we are not able to view the aggressor, the opponent, the bad faith actor as someone who bears God's image. And if King is correct, the divine image is never totally gone in that. So I do think the job is to try to appeal to that. doesn't mean that we coddle bigots. It doesn't mean that we pretend that someone isn't being abusive when they are. But I think the whole turn the other cheek teaching was something like this, keeping your mind an imagery of infinite possibility. I want to note, too, that Lawson got kicked out of Vanderbilt. We know because Lawson and Campbell talked about it, and have, this is part of the record, that the Vanderbilt Board of Trustees, when they saw things were getting hot, asked James Lawson to just unenroll, stop being a student here. And he was prone to say, okay. Will Campbell said, don't do it. Make them fire you. And there was even a moment when Lawson was meeting, maybe with a religion faculty or whatever, and he had Will Campbell with him. And they said they tried to keep Will Campbell out of the meeting. And they said, this is a family affair. Family. <laughs> You're asking him to stop being a student. Right? You're playing the family card. To which James Lawson said, Will is family. And they went into the meeting together. Campbell was a much older man than Lawson at that point. And so with Lawson and Campbell, you have that if, if re readers don't know, Campbell was close to Chris Christopherson, Walker Percy, Thomas Merton, Martin Luther King Jr. He's this figure, Baptist minister, novelist, writer, gadfly, who was present for a lot of this. He was a white man who accompanied, he was there with the Little Rock Nine trying to prevent a shooter from doing something horrible. But there was a, I guess it's what Peter Moran would call clarification of thought happening between Lawson and Campbell at that point in time. And Lawson has said that the Black Lives Matter movement is part of the nonviolent movement of America. And that the Black Lives Matter movement, by looking after the families of victims of police violence, is actually succeeding in ways that what is called the civil rights movement did not. James Meredith of Oxford, Mississippi, has said the same thing, that George Floyd summer 2020 has delivered a death blow to white supremacy in America. So here we have these two veterans who don't get invited on television very often, these elders of the nonviolent movement of America, saying that now in 2022, we're in a new place. I, I have to throw in that when on the Ryman Auditorium is located on uh, Fifth Avenue, and it was recently declared John Lewis Way. James Lawson was there for that. 
John Meacham, Al Gore, all these local figures were present when James Lawson honored the late John Lewis at the Ryman Auditorium. But James Lawson also took the opportunity to address our governor, Bill Lee, who wasn't there, who chose not to attend. And he said, something's gone wrong for you, Bill Lee. I bet your parents loved you, but there's something that isn't right. And he even quoted Tombstone, Val Kilber, describing Johnny Ringo in Tombstone, said he's got a hole going down the middle of his soul. And, and in a beautiful way that was like an exorcism, James Lawson addressed the cameras and said, you can make this right. You live in a beautiful universe. God made you, Billy. And if you don't want to say God, nature made you. Like That's what Lawson does. But at this point, your posture toward nonviolent protesters your posture at that point in time toward Confederate monuments. It's as if you have a hole going down the middle of your soul. Now, and so even as he's saying that, he's not calling anyone a fool, not calling them demon-possessed, but in a therapeutic pastoral way, he, he was calling upon the governor of the state of Tennessee, who just recently won re-election while refusing to debate his opponent. He was noting a hardness of heart and saying, you don't have to live this way. And that can, that can be a rhetorical thing. You're better than this. You don't have to live this way. But when it is said and believed, I think that is the move. I think that is enemy love. Lawson, I remember when Lawson said, Gandhi said, I have no enemies. I disagree with Gandhi. I do have enemies. And then he defined the enemy. He said, an enemy is someone who for some reason is hardwired at the moment in their process to oppose that which makes for human thriving. They sabotage their own mental health and the mental health of others through the decisions they're making, the way they're talking. And at that point in time, this would have been 2007, James Lawson said, George W. Bush is my enemy. But Jesus tells me to love my enemy. So James Lawson was able to eulogize John Lewis in front of George W. Bush. And I don't know if they spoke to each other, but he was able to do it. And of course, George W. Bush eulogized John Lewis. But John Lewis did not attend the 2000 inauguration because John Lewis believed that the Supreme Court stole that election from Al Gore. So these are hot things but they can be talked about in a way that is respectful and is not toxic. So I, when we get traumatized, we're tempted toward city forms in us. But as Lawson would note, we have the power, the moral power, to let our better selves come to the surface of these conflicts. And as you're giving us this answer, one of the things that rings out for me is this ethic of invitation. Like the, Lawson was inviting the governor and George W. Bush to be their better selves. But as we're moving towards the end of our conversation, I just want my listeners to understand that I have watched you do this on countless occasions in various public discussion forums, particularly on Twitter, 
there's a real sense, and I've learned this from you in many ways, where when you do come into conflict with someone, you are always trying to get granular and always trying to bring the conversation to a place where one of you can actually respond to the other in a human sort of way. And I wonder if you would just talk to my listeners a little bit about what it's like to be in those spaces where you are dealing with strangers, some of whom only see you with hostility or only see you as a stereotype, and how you try in those situations to bring some humanity and, if you will, some imago dei back into those interactions. Yes, I know that on Twitter, my voice isn't there, my face isn't there, and people might be prone, especially if you're someone who isn't accustomed to being questioned by others in public. It can get really testy, really, really punchy. But the job, stand where you must stand, be human there. I've got a mother who has believed in me when I didn't. Yeah, this is a strange thing to say. I've got to explain to my mom. But I'm I'm just going to note that part of my cockiness is still feeling like a child who is invited into every space. When I was down as a child, my mother would always say, if they could just get to know you, you're going to have something good to say. So I have a very strong self-conception that serves me well in those spaces. And I hate snobbery, I think. I hate the suggestion that there are some people who are more important than others and that there are some people who are just randos. Oh, you're just random. Like to ever refer to another human being as, as random, as not having an important thing to say. I'm ready to fight a little, to nonviolently say, now hold on, slow your roll. You're diminishing this person. And you're trying to do it in a kind of gaslighting, certainly, but suggesting that they're being hysterical or unreasonable. And I have a, a former student named Melly. Um, who said, my secret power is diverting the conversation back to the person who just got cut off. So because I live in the classroom, people raise their hands sometimes, but a lot of what I'm doing is, you look like you want to say something. Or let's go back to what you were saying. Can I get you to speak? So I kind of have this Donahue thing going on where I've got a microphone and I'm trying to hand the microphone to people. Julian Baker, the singer, said the most punk rock thing you can do with a microphone is share it. So I do this weird thing. I don't know that anyone else does it, but I retweet replies even when they're antagonistic. And I will even say, would you mind putting that statement in the form of a question? And sometimes they'll say, well, yeah, okay, I'll do that. With Thoreau, I believe that everyone craves reality. But some of us crave reality more healthily than others. So I do generally presume if somebody takes a shot at me that they do want to talk. I'm sometimes very wrong. They do not want to talk. They just wanted to poke at me. So I don't think that I'm a troll on Twitter. And we'll see how long Twitter lasts. But I am drawn to the drama of who's ignoring who and who is unwilling to amplify particular people. And if I'm not careful, that can consume every moment of my waking life. But my personality seems to be, I just love conversation. And if I'm reading a book and I read a good sentence, 
I want to go ahead and put that on Twitter, just see what people think of it. And that's me. That was mixtapes when I was a teenager. That's me trying to get people to watch movies and read books. And there's, I think there's kind of an intellectual hospitality thing there. But I, by that, I mean, I'm a recipient of intellectual hospitality. And when I hear an album or see a film, I want to tell people about it. I want people to watch Midnight Mass. I so want people, because I do think that Midnight Mass is a Netflix series. It's, it, it taught me stuff. And I have a fantasy that if I could go on a retreat with a number of really abusive millionaires in Tennessee and get them to watch Midnight Mass with me, and then we talk about it, it would be like William Stafford's <laughs> ritual to read to each other. It could be like a poem where we all slow our roll a little bit and kind of get to the bottom of our own our own toxicity in some way. So I, I love doing that on Twitter. Um, it gets the best of me sometimes, but at least for now, I'm going to stay on. Well, David Dark, as always, I am so grateful to you for your work, for the way that you think, for the references that you bring into my orbit. Thank you so much for the time that it took both to write Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, but also to revise it and expand it and reframe it. But thank you especially for taking time today to talk about it with me and with my listeners. I love your work. I'm honored to be associated with your efforts. We've been speaking today with David Dark. He's an American writer and public intellectual. He's the author of a number of books, including The Possibility of America, which we've discussed here on the show before. Today, we've been talking about the reframed and expanded version of an older book of his, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.